Well, good morning, church family, and Happy New Year. This is my first time back here in the pulpit in the new year, and uh, it's been a good year already, hasn't it? 2023 is already better than 2022. Praise God. Listen, friends, we're starting a new sermon series this week that's going to last for about six weeks, maybe beyond that. We're going to see how it goes. And this sermon series we've entitled Doctrine, because that's exactly what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be touching on some of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. We're going to be talking about theology. And we thought this was really important. First of all, it's a good way to start out a new year, right? To ground our faith in the the foundational doctrines of the church. But we also thought this was important to do pastorally because so many in our church are brand new Christians. People who've been baptized over the last year. And so this is an important series for you if you're a new Christian and you're thinking, as a Christian man or woman, I am born again, I am saved, I've been given a new life in Christ. What are the pillars that hold that life up? What are the, the beliefs that we hold to as Christians? Maybe you're a new Christian. This series is important for you. The other factor that's happened is, you know, I often joke that um, over the last 18 years that I've pastored St. George's, I've actually pastored about six different churches here, if you know what I mean. There's different seasons in the life of the church, and one of the things that marks this season that we're in right now is that so many people have come to our church family from other churches. So for the first many, many years, people who came to St. George's were largely people from our community or people who got saved and, you know, they just showed up at church and we said, look, this is how you read the Bible. And they're like, oh, that's how you read the Bible. Or we said, well, this is how our church is structured. This is how we make decisions. And they're like, oh, that's how the church is structured and makes decisions because they had no church history. But so many of you have come to us from other Christian churches. And so you come with these um, maybe even unconscious convictions around how to read the Bible, how churches operate, what to believe. And so for that reason also, we thought it was important to set out these six weeks and say, well, these are the things that we believe. These are the doctrines of the church. Look, in fact, it's true that every single person holds to doctrine. Every single person has a functional theology. Have you ever thought about that? Even the atheist. We all have ideas about God, thoughts that we have gleaned from others, maybe things from learned and lived experience that we then project onto our beliefs about God. But the problem is that in most cases, those beliefs that we hold about God are loosely formed at best. Sometimes they're ill-informed. And in some cases, they're outright unbiblical and wrong. We gather them uncritically and accumulate them in our hearts and in our minds over time. So again, that's why it's important for us to take these weeks and to clarify Christian doctrine. I think there's a final reason, well, there's probably many reasons, but there's a final reason I want to mention why it's important for us to do this series and undertake this for the next few weeks. As Christian men and women in Canada... 
we find ourselves in a country and in a social environment that is increasingly hostile to Christian faith. And unless we are clear, unless we are crystal clear on our beliefs, the things that we hold dear, we'll wake up one day and think, what on earth happened, right? Someone's moved all the goalposts. Everything has changed. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life or in your own family or as you look out at the world. What has happened? How did everything change so quickly, not only in our lives and in the world, but even many so-called churches? Well, the problem was people were not clear on biblical doctrine. They were asleep at the switch and everything moved beneath their feet. But the stakes are very, very high when it comes to considering doctrine and theology. The questions are big ones like these. Who is God? For what purpose did he create the cosmos? What is man? And what is our role within God's good design? What is sin? Have you ever thought about that? You see, a right understanding of sin is not only going to help you diagnose the problems of your life, your family, and your world, it's also going to give you hope. But that's a sermon for three Sundays from now, right? What is sin? What is salvation? How is it accomplished? And how can I know that I'm saved? These questions that come to us from doctrine and from theology come with endless applications. When we drill right into it, our doctrinal beliefs, our theological beliefs, our ideas about God, those are the foundations that secure the answers to questions like, Where do I turn to for hope? My life is difficult. My world feels like it's falling apart. To where do I turn? Well, how you answer that question is shaped by your doctrine. It's shaped by your theology. It's shaped by your beliefs about God. So these are really important questions. Questions like, is there any purpose to my existence? Sometimes when you're going about your life and dealing with all the mundane things that need to be done, you know, the death of a thousand cuts, you can wonder, is there any purpose to my existence beyond, you know, cutting up apples for my kids' lunches and riding the GO train into Toronto every day? Well, the answer to that question for the Christian man or woman is fundamentally a theological question of doctrine. Another one. What is justice? Does it even exist? Could we ever hope to see it in this world, this side of eternity? Again, that's a question that the Christian man or woman answers from their doctrine and from their theology. See, friends, these are the deep matters that shape everything about our day-to-day lives. I want you, just for a moment, to run a thought experiment with me. Think about what your life would look like if you truly and deeply believed and lived out of biblical convictions about God, who he is, 
who he is for you in Jesus. What he has accomplished for you on the cross. That he will return. What would your life look like if you truly believed those things? See, most often our anxieties and our worries, for example, are byproducts of bad theology and bad doctrine, bad thoughts about God. I want to give you an example of where this really matters. If you find yourself laying in bed at night and you can't get to sleep, you're anxious, you're worried sick, you're looking over at the alarm clock and you begin doing the math. You know what I mean, right? I got to get up at 6, it's 3.25, I have 2 hours and 35 minutes left to sleep. That kind of math? And the anxiety is just overtaking you in the middle of the night. Well, there are several possibilities for that state. One of them is maybe you have shirked your responsibilities, right? Maybe you have been irresponsible and the chickens are coming home to roost. And because of your lack of discipline in your life, you find yourself faced with an inevitable outcome that you don't want. And so you're filled with anxiety. Well, there's something to be said for that, right? But to our point this morning, there's another possibility. Perhaps it's true that you are plagued by anxiety in the middle of the night because you've forgotten God. Because you have misconstrued the truth of who God is revealed to you in Jesus in the Bible. I'll tell you a personal one. Sometimes the things that keep me awake at night is care and worry for my children. And the way that I get back to sleep is by preaching the gospel to myself. By in those moments, recalibrating and reminding myself of the truth of God's love for my children in Jesus Christ. I... I feel the anxiety in my life displaced by the truth of good biblical theology. This truth that no matter how much I love my children, God loves them exponentially more in Jesus Christ. I can go to sleep. So you see, this entire endeavor around doctrine and theology is not merely abstract. It really matters. Over these six weeks, we're going to do our best to make sure that these are not lectures, that they are, in fact, sermons. We're going to do our best to make sure that it's not an intro to theology class, but that it actually connects to your life and to the pastoral issues that you face. You know, that's what good theology and good doctrine always does anyway. Good theology always leads to doxology. Do you know what I mean? Good thoughts and clear thoughts that are grounded in truth and in Scripture about God will always lead you to deeper love, trust, and adoration of God himself. You will know God so that you can rightly love him. So that's going to be our series over the next six weeks.
And with that in mind, let's jump into our topic for today. Our first installment is, what is the Bible? Now, the Bible, if we're going to start talking about it, we begin with the idea and the truth that Christians believe that the truest things are not things that we surmise or calculate. They're not things that we observe and deduce. They're not constructs that we build, but that the truest things about everything are revealed to us by God. And that God reveals himself and reveals truth to us in two big categories. God reveals himself to us in something that's called general revelation. Now, you know how general revelation works, even if you've never been to church. Any moment that you are standing out in the nighttime, say far up north, and you look up at the starry sky and you are overwhelmed with awe. And you rightly draw the conclusion, what kind of God creates an elegant universe such as this? What majesty, what glory? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God, we're told. That's general revelation. Every time that you stand at the base of a mountain or maybe at its summit and you feel really, really small and insignificant, that's God's general revelation to you of his majesty and of his holiness. God generally reveals his attributes to us in nature, for example. But the second way that God reveals himself to us is not general, it's special. And God's special revelation only comes to us in his word. So you might know the general attributes of God. You might look out at a beautiful autumn afternoon with all the colors in their beautiful array, and you might conclude that there is a God who exists. You might conclude that he is a God of beauty and elegance and order. You might, you might surmise all of those general attributes. But you could never look at God's general revelation and conclude that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That God took human flesh in Jesus Christ, lived a sinless, spotless life that you and I could never do in our place, died a perfect death on the cross for our sin, was raised and ascended into heaven, that you can be a, sa a, a saved sinner. Those are only things that you can know through God's special revelation in his word, in the Bible. And it's essential for us to nail this down as our first in the series on doctrine because all of our other beliefs, all of our other doctrines, everything else that we hold to as Christians will be predicated on our understanding of what is the Bible. That it's God's word to us. It is his special revelation of himself. So what is the Bible? Well, in the Bible, we have 66 books written by some 40 authors over a time span of likely some 1,500 years. So when you pick up your Bible in your hand, think of it more as a mini library than a book. That's the first thing. The very name 
the Bible, as we call it in English, comes from the Greek word, uh, a Greek word that simply means book, right, or books. And so when we call it the Holy Bible, really all we're saying is it's the holy books. Now this morning as we consider this question, what is the Bible, I want us to look at four convictions that Christians hold about this book. The first is that it carries with it authority. The second, clarity. The third, necessity. And the fourth, sufficiency. These are going to help us to build a picture that answers this question, what is the Bible? And remember, the goal here is not merely to rearrange our mental furniture and to get right thoughts about the Bible. That's not the end goal. Rather, that we would know what is the Bible, that we would receive it, that we would cherish it as God's word, that we would know, love, and trust the God who is revealed in its pages. And that in response, we would give ourselves to studying it. The first thing I want us to consider, the first conviction around the word of God, is its authority. Well, you heard Christy read a a passage from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Actually, why don't you open up your Bibles to it so you have it in front of you. This morning, typically at St. George's, we preach expositionally or we just take one passage and we drill right into it. Instead, this morning, we're going to look at these four convictions. We're going to look at a biblical survey and allow the Bible to show us what the Bible says about itself. Okay, so it's going to be really helpful if you open up your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Remember, this first conviction we're talking about is authority. Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what does the Bible say about the Bible? Well, here Paul tells Timothy in verse 16 that all Scripture So what Paul's about to tell Timothy is not just for select portions of Scripture, right? It's not just the red letters or any parts that we like. Paul is telling Timothy all Scripture, Old and New Testament, we're going to pick that up in a moment, bears with it this authority. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. You know, we sometimes take our Bibles too um, nonchalantly, right? We treat them like something that looks good on our bookcase and maybe impresses our Christian friends when they come over. 
Or maybe for you, a Bible is merely a family heirloom that keeps track of all of the weddings and baptisms and deaths. But Paul tells Timothy and tells us that in fact, the Bible, all Scripture, is breathed out by God. It's the very Word of God. He goes on and he says, not only is it God-breathed, but it's profitable. Now, this is something that my soul needs to be reminded of on a daily basis. That no time spent reading God's Word is ever wasted. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. So, hands up if you're undertaking the Bible reading again this year. No, I won't ask you to do that. That's embarrassing. Um, We put out the five-day Bible reading plan for everyone to read through the Bible in a year, and, you know, it always starts out great with these amazing accounts in Genesis. And then Exodus is pretty cool, and then you get halfway through Exodus, and you're like, man, this is starting to drag a little bit. And then if you're honest, by the time you get to like Leviticus and Numbers, you're like on the brink of giving up. Because you think, man, I just don't, I don't see how this is relevant. But the Christian man or woman looks at it and says, when I'm reading these passages in Scripture that are apparently not relevant, I do so with discipline because I'm convinced and convicted that it is the God-breathed Word of God. And so I've been telling myself this when I encounter those passages. I'm reading along and I'm, and I'm slugging through them and I think, man, I really wish I wasn't doing this. And then I realize, anytime I encounter something in God's Word that appears boring or irrelevant, the problem is never with God's Word, it's with my heart. Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Paul goes on with Timothy. And again, look here, we're building this picture of the authority of God's Word, okay? So all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable. And then in verse 16, he says it's profitable for a couple of things. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, Well, any appeal to authority is on shaky grounds in our world these days, isn't it? Relativism means that everyone has their own truth, and so when you make truth claims, people look at you funny. And anytime you go to reprove or correct someone, it's always based on a claim to truth. But it's an invitation for us as Christians to ask the question, to what do we turn for authority? To to what authority do we appeal when we want to bring reproof or correction? Because I have to be honest, a lot of the things that I think are really weighty matters and I see very clearly and I get super heavy-handed and dogmatic about, they're just my opinion. Maybe they're my conscience being lived out in different ways. But the only authority we have for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness 
is nothing but the word of God. If you look over human history, the presenting issues have changed many times. But the underlying truths, the rails, if you will, that bring reproof and correction are timeless and they're found in the scriptures. Apart from that kind of mooring, apart from that kind of commitment to the authority of God's word, we live in a world where increasingly nothing means anything. On what grounds would you reprove? On what grounds would you correct? Well, you have your truth and I have mine. But Christians say, no, no, no. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in godliness. So Paul tells Timothy, look at verse 14. The Bible is authoritative, so continue in it. Verse 15, become ever more deeply acquainted with it because it's going to make you wise to salvation. And verse 17, he says, not only for salvation, but for godliness. It will make you complete and equipped for every good work. So Paul tells Timothy, part of the answer to this question that we've posed, what is the Bible? Well, it carries authority, the very authority of the word of God. Turn in your Bibles over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Another passage that speaks to our understanding of the authority of the Bible. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Peter writes and says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the immediate context, if you look back at verse 16, Peter is, yes, talking about prophecies of Old Testament, but he's also talking about his own letters. Back in verse 16, he says, We do not follow cleverly devised myths, but we follow eyewitness accounts of the majesty of Jesus Christ. So when, Paul, when Peter is lending authority to his own letter, he puts it in the same umbrella as Old Testament prophecy in Scripture. And he says, we're not just following after myths, we're following eyewitness accounts. And what Peter's talking about here most probably is actually the transfiguration. When he saw Jesus Christ displayed in glory, he saw it with his own eyes. But in verses 20 to 21, Peter tells his audience that what he is carrying, the authority that he carries in writing these letters, is more than just eyewitness account. Now, if you've ever watched these true crime shows, you'll know that even eyewitness accounts can become corrupted, right? People carry with them their own biases. They, they project their own ideas onto their eyewitness accounts, and sometimes they get those wrong. And so what Peter says is, Look, it's trustworthy, first of all, because it's an eyewitness account, but it's even more trustworthy, verses 20 to 21, because what we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament, verse 21, 
is men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, Christian man or woman, you open up your Bible and you read it. And what you're reading is the Holy Spirit of God carrying men along who were writing down the very word of God. And so it's authoritative. It's authoritative because it's transcribed by men but given by God. And it's worth noting that Peter puts his own writings in the same category of Scripture as when he's talking about Old Testament. He's self-aware that what he's writing is the Word of God. One final verse or chapter, little uh, passage I want you to see on the authority of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. This is Paul writing, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Okay, here... Paul is doing the exact same thing that Peter did a moment ago. He qualifies and expands this truth of all Scripture that's laid out in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He's talking to the Thessalonians and he's telling them that how the Thessalonian Christians received Paul's own letters, that is, that which we call the New Testament, was not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the Word of God. So this forms the backbone of our first conviction. What is the Bible? It carries with it a unique authority. The authority of the very Word of God. Now look, anytime you encounter individual Christians or maybe even churches or entire so-called pastors and their movements that try to undermine the authority of the Word of God, they will often do so with what they state as the best of intent, right? They're trying to be clever. They're trying to be intelligent. They're trying to be erudite. They're trying to make it apply. Well, the first thing is you don't make God's Word relevant. It is relevant because it's God's Word. The second thing is, um, anytime you see this, it's always a rebellious attempt to not only undermine the authority of God's word, but to usurp the authority of God himself. It is always the same sin that we see in Genesis 3, where the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say Friends, don't move on from this. The authority of God's word is central to the Christian life. Because it is God's authority mediated to us. Okay, God's word and its authority. The second point is God's word and its clarity. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Flip back there, please. 2 Peter chapter 3. 
So God's word carries with it authority. It's also clear. But this is kind of an interesting passage. Okay, it's a fun one. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Peter's writing and he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Okay, so what's Peter doing? Peter's writing to his audience, and he's saying, yeah, I write things, and Paul also writes things, right? And those are the things that we call the New Testament. Then Peter says to his audience, he says, there are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, Well, this is a fascinating passage because I love the fact that the Bible is honest about the fact that some passages in Scripture are actually hard to understand. But what's implied in what Peter says to his audience about Paul's letters, by virtue of the fact that Peter says that some people take those ones that are hard to understand and they twist them and manipulate them, Peter's saying it's possible to take those passages that are hard to understand and get them wrong, but think about the logic loaded into that. Therefore, it's also possible to come to hard passages in Scripture and get them right. Scripture's clear. Doesn't mean it's always easy, but it means you can understand what it says. This was a great principle of the Protestant Reformation, the perspicuity of Scripture. Great word, eh? Perspicuity of Scripture. Bring that one up over lunch. The idea behind the perspicuity of Scripture um, is that the average person can pick up the Bible and read it and understand it. You don't need a pope or a magisterium to tell you what the Bible says. You can read it. You can understand it. Now, when you come to passages like this one that Peter's talking about that are hard to understand, that's not an invitation to just throw your arms up in the air and say, well, I guess, you know, the Bible's complicated. Who knows what it says? That's actually an invitation to roll up your sleeves and do the heavy lifting, do the spade work and figure out what it says and study what it means and let that passage unfold before you. Dig into it with a pickaxe and let it, and let it reveal its treasure and its gold. Scripture's clear. You can give yourself to the study of Scripture. Actually, even more particularly, it's not only that you can give yourself to the study of Scripture, you get to. You know, the Word of God can be something that's exciting. When you come to difficult passages, it can actually be something that gets you really pumped. The thought, man, I'm going to dig into this because I'm convinced that this is God's word. I'm convinced that it speaks with authority to my life. I'm convinced of its clarity. I just need to do the work and figure it out. That's a fun task. You can actually get excited about reading God's word because it's clear. I hear people sometimes saying to me, well, I don't read my Bible just because it's so hard to read, right? 
Well, in some cases, it is hard to read, and especially if you're a new Christian. But J.C. Ryle said, knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can't be obtained. It can only be obtained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive, wakeful reading. You know, friends, that means no matter how good your intent, no matter how wonderful your New Year's resolutions were, right? Eat less chips, go to the gym, read my Bible. No matter how good all those things were, you're not going to come to know God and come to know his word by just putting your Bible up against your head and sleeping on it at night. That's not what the clarity of Scripture means. Our conviction to the clarity of Scripture means that if you give yourself to it, God will lead you in your study and reveal truth to you. He will grant you the Holy Spirit that will lead you to truth that is not a precept, but a person, Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear. Even in the hard places. Okay, so there are some passages that are difficult to understand. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The writer of the Hebrews says in 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I have this passage in a frame up on one of the walls in my study. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a reminder for me because this passage exposes some of the false narratives that we bring to the Bible. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we shy away from the Bible because we encounter passages that are difficult because they're difficult to understand. Okay? That's, that's one category of difficult in Scripture. They're hard to understand. And those exist. But sometimes we shy away from Scripture not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's difficult and painful to accept and apply. Those are the passages that when we read them in the Bible, we think, man, I sure wouldn't include that if I was God. You know, you're reading your Bible and you think, man, that passage, God, you really got a PR problem with that one. Um, that one's going to make you unpopular at the cocktail party. But the writer of the Hebrews says that the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. In fact, it's so sharp that when I read it, it reads me. The Bible is so sharp that when I read it, it lays bare my heart and my intentions. When I read the Bible, it, it actually exposes everything about me. The parts that I'm not even honest with about myself, 
the parts that when they're exposed make me feel as though the writer of the Hebrews says that I'm naked, exposes my real motives. If you've read your Bible at all, you've likely encountered some of those passages. Things in God's word that you wish weren't there. Christian man or woman, what do you do when you find something in the Bible that you wish weren't so? You're faced with a moment of decision. What are you going to do? Are you going to play fast and loose with it? Are you going to say things like, well, it was a primitive book. It was a, you know, back in ancient times, they didn't know any better. Are you going to find a so-called Bible teacher that will itch your ears and encourage you in your heresy? Are you going to find something in Scripture you don't like and put yourself over Scripture as the judge of Scripture and as the judge of God and say, surely God wouldn't allow, require anything that I wouldn't allow or require and therefore dismiss it? Or are you going to read Scripture under Scripture? And when you encounter those things that you wish weren't there, You wrestle with them, you struggle with them, but at the end of the day, you bow your knee to the authority of the Lord. Look, when was the last time that through careful study of the Bible, you changed your mind? When was the last time you were reading the Bible and it didn't just reinforce all of the values that you brought to the day of Bible reading, but actually challenged them? And you repented and you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Anytime we read the Bible and we put ourselves over top of it, we commit the great reverse miracle. We create a God in our own image, right? Make no mistake. Scripture is authoritative and it's clear. Now we, as Christian men and women, hold to the authority and the clarity of Scripture not as a mere doctrine that we hold forth. We don't cling to it like a club that we go around banging other people on the head and beating other people up with. But we hold to the authority and the clarity of God's word because it's true. And because God's word is true, it is loving. And it is good. You know, this is something I think that we as Christians have to reclaim. Far too often when we hold to the authority and the clarity of God's word, we come across like a bunch of people that are trying to foist our values onto other people and make them live according to our values. And we come off as really bristly, angry people. But that's not what really informs the Christian faith and Christian life. We don't hold to these things because we have the right ideas and truths and everyone else needs to believe them. We hold to them because we believe that they're true, that they're good, that they are the best for thriving of humanity, and so we plead with other people 
from the perspective of an authoritative, clear word of God. That's what's truly loving. God's word is authoritative and it's clear. We live under it, not over it. I'm actually going to finish with this one. Necessity, last one, Romans 10. Open up your Bibles to Romans 10. So far we've said God's word is authoritative, that it's clear, and now we're saying that it's necessary. Romans 10, verses 8 to 14. This is a little bit longer, but um, I won't preach long on it. Paul says in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now the word Paul uses for preaching, caruso, this is a word that um, carries with it the idea of heralding, right? telling forth. And, and in the New Testament, it's, it's primarily a technical word that's talking about um, heralding the apostolic witness to Christ, preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. And so, lastly, we see that God's word is not only authoritative and clear, but that it's necessary. God's word is necessary because how would you ever know that you are a sinner apart from God's word? How would you know? Well, you might look at your life and see areas that are not exactly the way you want them to be or maybe problems in your life that offend other people and that cause the breakdown of relationships, but you might just conclude that you need to watch another episode of Oprah. If it wasn't for God's word, how would you ever know that the primary, deepest problem in your life is sin? Rebellion against God. Failure to trust in his word. And then it just spills out from there. How would you ever know that apart from his word? God's word is necessary. Apart from God's word, how would you ever know that there is a Lord and Savior and his name is Jesus Christ? And that he came to die for sinners like you. So that sin is no longer the final word for you. How would you ever know that apart from God's word? That's what Paul's saying. How could you ever believe apart from God's word? See, that's what Paul's saying. You might believe in something, but it would probably be something that was misguided or something that was in error. It's only God's word that gives shape and form to your beliefs. You see, Scripture is not only authoritative, it's not only clear, but it's also necessary.
And I'd be remiss before I move on if I didn't just say, if you're here this morning and you do not know that you've been saved, that you're a Christian, hear these words from verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We started out asking the question, what is the Bible? We said it's authoritative, it's clear, it's necessary, and it's sufficient. Um, Article 6 of the 39 Articles of Religion is our Anglican belief on the Bible. And in it, it says, Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not required for any man that it should be believed as an article of faith or thought to be requisite or necessary for salvation. You see, some 500 years ago when those articles of religion were written, they said two things primarily about Scripture. One positive, one negative. The first one is that in Scripture you have everything necessary to be reconciled to God. The second thing is the negative thing. Article 6 says, you cannot require of anyone more than what can be clearly proved with Scripture in order to be reconciled to God. And so, as Christian men and women, this clear doctrine on what is the Bible should be something that is good news. Because in it, we have the authority and the clarity and everything necessary to reconcile us back to our God and Father. It's also good news because no one is allowed to come along and heap more requirements on you than what's clear and simple in Scripture. You don't need to look anywhere else, and you can't look anywhere else. And so my prayer for you, church family, today is that you would know what is the Bible, that you would grow in loving it and cherishing it, that you would come to trust the God who is revealed in it, and that you would give yourself to the study of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together as we move through different passages in the Bible. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us your spirit that would lead us into truth and displace all of those false narratives that we live out of about who you are. God, I pray specifically for everyone here that this week they would find themselves excited to open their Bibles and hear from you. That their hearts would be gripped by that truth, that the God of the universe has spoken, and it's right here in this book. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen.